I'm actually starting a series uh, this morning called uh, Streams in the Desert. I think the PowerPoint got, thank you. And I'm talking on the subject Revive Our Land. Now, the Streams in the Desert sort of uh, program, the subject, is going to go through the autumn. It's looking at Isaiah. It won't be looking at the whole book. We'll be dipping into it. But I'm going to take just a couple of minutes to introduce Isaiah, not lengthily, but if you're a visitor or you're not familiar with the Bible, it might be helpful to you to know where I'm preaching from, and I'll be having a few quotes up on the screen. But even as a a Christian, it's good to sometimes remind ourselves of the books we've got in our Bible, what we can enjoy. Now, Isaiah, for me, I'd call it the Everest of the prophetic books of the Old Testament. It is a magnificent book. It is uh, 66 chapters, and uh, that, that is long, but it's packed with wonderful, wonderful stuff. Someone has said that Isaiah is like the Bible in miniature, and you can look at it this way, that the first 39 chapters, which would correspond to the first 39 books, the Old Testament, is the book of judgment, where the, the writer focuses on the sin of Israel, what they've done wrong on God's character, Israel's behavior, the consequence of that behavior, and there's some pretty challenging stuff in there. Then the second part is sometimes called the book of comfort. That's the, 27, uh, the last 27 chapters, which would correspond to the New Testament, 27 books there. And it focuses on God's love more, on his salvation and the hope that he brings. And that's a, I get interested by things like that. That's quite a neat way of, uh, that won't make much difference to your life, but hey, you can perhaps do well in a pub quiz if it ever came up. But it is a great, great book. It is a wonderful book and it's full of magnificent things. And actually the writer Isaiah uses uh, an, uh, what is in the Bible, a quite an unusual term for God, which often gets translated the Holy One of Israel for us. But it means the completely set apart in a league of his own one. And he uses this phrase for God probably 20, 30 times. In the rest of the Bible, it's only about six times. So he really is wrapped up in the magnificence of who God is. And I'm going to give you, in this introduction, just a couple of tasters of the insight Isaiah gives into the magnificence of God. Look at this one, Isaiah 40, verses 25 to 26, the next uh, PowerPoint. To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One. If There we are. Who, to whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls forth each of them by name. But because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. There's that sense of the glory of God, the greatness of God in creation. And then the next one, if you could put up the next slide please. Isaiah 46, 9 to 10 says this, remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Now that's what I'd call awesome. (laughs) It's an overused word, awesome. But God is awesome. He's in charge of history. He knows the end from the beginning. He's the creator of the starry heavens and the galaxies. And Isaiah frequently raises our eyes to the magnificence of God and all that it is and all that it means to understand him. And yet he also, Isaiah, focuses on God's concern with men and women. 
that God will provide answers to our needs. There's some glorious insights into God's provision of salvation in the book of Isaiah. There's some very moving and powerful references to the servant king, the servant saviour, the servant Messiah, and his suffering for people, and he's delivering them from their own sin and failure. There's many prophetic aspects to Isaiah that look beyond the, the immediate audience Isaiah had way back there thousands of years ago in Israel, and, and look beyond to a new heavens and a new earth, even that we haven't yet reached, but also that look to the new covenant, to when Jesus, as we know the name, came and died and rose again. And actually, Jesus himself refers to the book of Isaiah more times than any other book in the Old Testament other than Psalms. And Paul, in his letters, refers to the book of Isaiah more than any other book in the Old Testament. So Isaiah is really relevant to us. It's a magnificent book, and you could do a lot worse than using it as your quiet time, uh, uh, go-to book for quiet time during the autumn while we're preaching on it. And if you want to, there's a great little book called uh, Get It to to the Heart of, Getting to the Heart of Isaiah by Phil Moore. Uh, It's a great series, and it's particularly good on Isaiah, just little bite-sized things to study as you look through the book. Now, one of the things that Isaiah does a a lot of is point us to God's answers, to the fact that God is the answer to our need and to the hope he brings. And one way he describes it is that God is a God of reviving. He's a reviving God. And he uses it a little more as a verb than we do. A noun, revival, he uses a verb to revive. So God revives. And we get a lot of insight into that in the book of Isaiah. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to briefly look at three ways God is a God of revival. The individual, the church, and the nation. So let's talk about the individual first. This is something relevant to all of us. And to just focus our thoughts from Isaiah, I want to look at one verse. So that's going to come up on your screen. Isaiah 57 and verse 15. Now let's just read this carefully and just let it sink in. The truth speaks to us without my comments in some ways. For this is what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Let's leave that verse up for a moment just while I talk. So it's there in front of us even as I talk. It's a powerful verse. It's an incredible mixture of the glory of God and who he is, beautifully, poetically put, and then the incredible fact that God lives or loves to live and come and meet with and live with individuals, lowly, contrite hearts. We're going to look there in a moment. Revival in a nation in a church, in any community, really starts with revival in individuals and individual lives. God brings spiritual reviving, spiritual revival through people, people who he fills with his spirit, through spiritually alive people. But we mustn't misunderstand what that means. We can think that that means high-capacity people, high-energy very able, intelligent, top of their game, self-confident people. They're the people God uses. No, that's not what it means. 
That's not the way it works. Look at it again. For this is what the high and exalted one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. We get that God would, if we think of a God, we get that he would live in a high and holy place. But the second part of the verse is a surprise, isn't it? And isn't it an amazing and wonderful surprise? God says, I also live with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. And that is glorious and maybe a little bit disconcerting because this is a truth that is echoed throughout the Bible. And when we were looking at the marks of Jesus, if you were here for that series, it would have come up again and again in the way Jesus dealt with things. The first shall be last. I remember preaching on that. It touched on this fact that God is in a way a humble God. God is a God who loves to meet the humble and lowly. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in a, in a manger, in a stable. Now this isn't some demonstration of something that like, you know, is a sort of artificial thing. This is the truth. God connects with those who are broken and humble and contrite. They are the ones who are going to meet with him. And it's a profound truth that comes up again and again in the Bible. It's not the proud, the together, the perfect, the capable, the pharisaical who are going to meet with God. It's the tax collector breathing his breast. It's the prostitute. It's the leper that Jesus is there. Now, it's not that, that God is against the others. It's they're just not open to him. They don't want him to live with them. They don't understand it. They don't get it. They think they're okay. They think they're doing God a favor. They think they've got something to offer to him. But actually they haven't. And those who are lowly and contrite, and contrite means humble, discouraged, broken, cast down. That's the sort of meaning of the word. And those are people who are like that are ready for God. Jesus said he came to call sinners. He came to look for the sick, if you like, not those who, who thought they were well. And it's a profoundly important truth. God is a reviving God, but he starts with those who know they need reviving. Now, you see, I'm putting that carefully. Know they need reviving. Because before the awesome, holy God, we all should be contrite and lowly. See, it's not like, well... God just likes to deal with needy people. That's very nice. I'm fine on my own. I don't. No, no, that's the problem. We are all needy. You're not fine on your own. Actually, the contrite and lowly are the realists. They are the realists on the big issues of life and death and meeting with God. We all need God. We all have good cause to be contrite which means probably literally to be broken-hearted because of sin and failure. It's probably literally what it means. Those who are broken-hearted because of sin and failure, those who feel a mess and know they're a mess, God's going to meet with them and he's going to change it. Lowly is what it says on the packet. It means they don't have a high view. They have a modest view. They have a realistic view. Before the holy high God, we are all very lowly. And they're the ones who will meet with God. When they say, Lord, without you, we are nothing. 
You see, we must be thirsty. Let's put up a New Testament scripture. This is Jesus, John 7. Let's put it up and read it. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit. This is John writing a little editorial comment. The Apostle John, he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now that is short-term sort of uh, code, if you like, glorified for Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension. And he said that hadn't happened yet. Jesus hadn't gone through the cross, through to resurrection and, and ascension. But when he had, this could be true. If you're thirsty, come and drink and he will fill you with the Holy Spirit. But there is a qualification. Be thirsty or recognize you're thirsty. If you are thirsty, he will come to you and satisfy your thirst. Now this applies, I would argue, to pretty well everyone in the room this morning on the individual basis. If you're not yet a Christian, you don't feel you know God or have ever connected with him at all, can I just ask you a question, a very simple one, Are you thirsty? Do you want to know God? Do you really feel, if you like, contrite? That you feel a bit broken and needy and a bit discouraged and cast down? I feel perhaps I'm no good. Perhaps God doesn't want me. Perhaps I'm not good enough for him. Well, let me tell you, you are exactly the one that the Most High wants to dwell with. You are fully qualified You can come this morning and say, Jesus, come into my heart, save me, fill me with your spirit. I'm thirsty, Lord. He loves it. You can do it on your own. You can do it when we finish, we'll sing our song. You can come and pray with someone at the front. There'll be a few people in our prayer team. It doesn't need to be dramatic. It just needs to be sincere. Lord, I need you to live with me. And the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity will make his home in your heart. Isn't that amazing? It is amazing and it's wonderful. But let me also say, the rest of you and me who are followers of Jesus, and who would say, yeah, I've done that once. Can I just ask the basic question? Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you filled with thanksgiving, peace, righteousness and joy in the Holy Spirit? Is there a feeling of bubbling over? Is there a feeling of, yeah, I know him, Abba Father, Probably for some of you say, yeah, just in a great place with God. But for many of you, that may not be true. In which case, Jesus' appeal is still there. If you're thirsty, come. Or the Old Testament Isaiah way, are you feeling lowly and contrite and a bit dry? Do you need reviving? God will revive the spirit of the lowly. Come afresh to God. Come and drink. Come say, Lord, revive me. Lord, meet me again. I mean, it's glorious. I can't overemphasize it. The qualification is not your performance. It's his performance that will earn that for you. Jesus' performance. That was complete. He's gone to heaven. You don't come. That thirsty call of Jesus was come to me and drink and it'll happen. You don't have to come and earn it or work for it or deserve it even. You just come. Thirsty. Now, Isaiah echoes that again and again, and we haven't time to explore it this morning. But take it, take it as truth and respond to it, please. 
I want to talk about the church for a few minutes because I think we can find in, in Isaiah a, a promise and a challenge, if you like, to the church, to God's people. Let's look at Isaiah 60, verses 1 to 3. If you could pop the next one up, thank you. This is what it says. Arise, shine, for your light has come. Now, you just need to know, in context, that is speaking to Zion, the city of God, to Jerusalem, to Israel. And it's all a little bit, even in Isaiah's day, it's a bit sort of shorthand for God's people. And we know that that terminology is transferred in the New Testament to those who follow Jesus. You can read it for yourself in Hebrews 12, verse 22. So Zion, or God's dwelling place, or the city of God, is, is something can speak to us as followers of Jesus, the church of Jesus Christ. And this is what Isaiah writes, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth. Thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Now, I'm just going to refer to two people who I love reading about, reading from, Martin Lloyd-Jones and then A.W. Tozer. Now, you may never have heard about them, but they wrote probably and spoke and wrote about 50 years ago or so. And as I was growing up as a young Christian, I often read many of their books. You can still get many books by Martin Lloyd-Jones or Tozer. I'd always recommend you to get a book by one of those men and read it. You'd find them a help. Both of them had a burden for something like Isaiah's burden, that God's people should be full of God's presence and shining in a dark world. And that would be my burden as well. Martin Lloyd-Jones said one of the main drivers for revival is a deep, wholehearted concern for the condition of the church, an awareness of who the church is and what she should be. We need that. We really need that. We need to have a love for the church and a concern. Arise, shine, shine in the dark, dark world we're in. Tozer wrote this, which I feel still relevant. Listen to this. I'm reading a quote. It's not going to go on the screen. The treacherous enemy facing the church of Jesus Christ today is the dictatorship of the routine. When the routine becomes Lord in the life of the church, when we come to a place where everything can be predicted and nobody expects anything unusual from God, we are in a rut. Then we have reached a place where what has been determines what is and what is determines what will be. That's when we need to cry out to God for revival in the church. That's how I feel we are today. Not that we're boring, but you think, come on, Lord, we need you. We need more of you. We need you to turn up, (laughs) arise and shine. We want to rise and shine. Lord, we need you. And then he goes on to say about the voice of unbelief that says, this is Tozer, says people who say, Christians, yes, I believe that God will bless at some other time in some other place and some other people. But he exhorts us to the voice of faith, which says anything God promised and did at any time in any other place for anybody, God will do for us if we meet his conditions. And then he draws our attention to 2 Chronicles 7.14, which is going to go up on your screen, which is a wonderful summary of those conditions. 
God says to his people and the church of Jesus Christ are his people, if my people who are called by my name, have the name of Jesus to them, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Let's leave it up for a moment. Gloriously simple. The conditions are not a mountain to climb. They're again back where we started with the individual. Humble. Humble themselves. Say, God, we need you. Lord, we need your face. We seek your face. We seek your presence. We seek your glory. Yes, Lord, we want to be turned from any sin and wickedness because we want to glorify you. That is the spirit that brings revival, a visitation of God on his people. It is genuinely a balanced revival of the sovereignty of God, what God does and we can't possibly do, and our own responsibility as God's people, the church. And you can see that on the day of Pentecost, which is perhaps the archetypical revival, uh, Acts 2. It says, in, we're not going to read it, it's not on the screen. In Acts 2 verses 1 and 2, it says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, in one translation anyway. On the day when God chose, he sent his spirit on the church. There was a sense in which the timing was sovereign. It was God's timing. They couldn't force his hand in that sense. They had to wait, and then the day of Pentecost came, and God came, suddenly from heaven. But, a very real but needs to be added. 120 people were being obedient to Jesus as far as they could be. Jesus had said, wait, you get it, read it in Acts 1 verse 4, wait in Jerusalem until the gift my father promised. Wait until the Holy Spirit comes on you. And they were waiting. Jesus had said, take the gospel to the ends of the earth, but they didn't start traveling out, they didn't start doing anything, but what he said, waiting for the empowering. And they were doing more than waiting around, like waiting for a bus. They were obedient and prepared. Acts 1 verse 14 tells us they all joined together constantly in prayer. So God's people were ready and prepared and obedient. They were humble and seeking God's face. But they could not force revival. They couldn't make it happen. They were waiting, doing what they could, and then suddenly from heaven... The Holy Spirit came on them. I would believe that is a model. I believe it's a model throughout the church era, throughout the era we're in. There is something about revival where you've got to have God came. You can't force it. You can't create revival. You can't just have a good meeting and get a great old knees up, get the best band in the world. And you can have to do some wonderful things and people can get saved. I'm not knocking that. But you don't actually get what we're looking for. This God came. And, and swept through us and swept out from us and touched lives all around us. It's, it's something that is God. And yet you can prepare. And in fact, I would say you have no right to expect God to intervene in the face of indifference, disobedience and prayerlessness. So there is a tension between our responsibility and God's sovereignty. And that's, I think, the position we're in ourselves. Are we really hungry and thirsty church I'm talking to, wanting God. I would exhort us to to dig deep and to think, are we happy? 
Am I satisfied with the state of the church? Am I satisfied with the state of our church, Hope Church? Am I satisfied with the state of the church in the UK? Yeah, there's lots of exciting things going on. There's lots of exciting things going on here. But am I satisfied with the overall picture, the general sort of muddle of the church? It's, it's marginalised and insignificant and compromised. There's still a lot of empty buildings. and There's still a drop away of attendance. And probably, I think the figures are roughly this, if you did a survey amongst our countrymen, fellow countrymen, less than 3% would say they ever attended a place of worship. And maybe that might go up a little at Christmas time. So there's a huge, huge, huge need, isn't there? I mean, we're talking seriously big. And, 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 and are we happy that Christians in modern Britain are disdained? That they think we're believing something that's obviously outmoded and exploded? It's not. It's the truth. And it makes more sense than any other view of life. And we, we want people to know, not just to know we've got it right, to know the truth. It will make them, set them free. We want our light to shine in this dark place and this dark time. It's not just for our benefit. The arise and shine. It's not just so people, you know, think, oh, you're great and you're wonderful people you are. That's nice. But that's not what it's about. It's about bringing hope and help to the people around us, to the problems in their lives. There are essentially two operations to what we would call historically a genuine revival. The real thing, the real deal. Two operations. One, the Holy Spirit awakens the church and empowers the church to reach the lost. Two, the Holy Spirit awakens lost people and fills them with a sense of the gravity of their sin and their need for God. And those things are things the Holy Spirit does in a true five-star gold revival, which is what I have never seen and I want to see. Don't you? I've seen moves of God in the church. I've seen, had great privileges. I once was in a situation which touched the nearest to that. When I was at university and it was a, a mission led by David Watson and his team and he, was, he brought the whole thing of the gifts of the Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit to us as Christians which was extremely controversial at the time and set me into turmoil. But at the same time in one week in the late 1960s, I think it might have been about 69, with a, in a very left-wing university, massive drug taking, very great immorality, got on the front page of the uh, of one of the Sunday papers because they were all running around without any clothes on. I didn't, but a load of others were stoned out their heads. And they got on the front. And, and into that situation, in one week, we saw 200 people saved. I, I mean, I was in meetings that nearly a 1,000 people smoking drugs, shouting obscenities at David Watson, and yet he preached the gospel and people came forward night after night. And he was dressed in a tweed jacket. That was not the way you dressed in those days. It was long. I had long hair. Even I had long hair. <laughs> and, and people had loon trousers, sort of like very tight here. And then like you could almost camp in them down the bottom like a tent. And, 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 and sort of tie-dye tie, dye T-shirts and all this stuff. Very different. But, and he was, in, he was got a collar and tie, tweed jacket and a very plummy voice and short back and sides hair. 
And I mean, it just, and people were shouting at him, and he was answering, and he was just preaching the gospel. And, and it was, you see, it wasn't, you, you couldn't say, well, if you dressed like, exactly like David Watson, and spoke like him, and stood like him, you'd have the same effect. Nonsense. Actually, if you analyse that you think that is not the way to do it, to a thousand uh, hippie, rebel, left-wing, 1969-70, pull down the government, smash everything, students. That is not how you'd appeal to them. And yet we, we were overwhelmed in the Christian Union. I mean, we had an amazing year, which was chaotic. We had nearly 150 added to it, and loads of us were struggling with baptism and spirit, and we were about 50 conservative evangelicals before this happened. I mean, that's the nearest I've seen to revival. I long to see that sort of thing again. Where it just doesn't compute by human... You know, yes, there are people praying. We've been praying. Yes, there's someone preaching the gospel with power in the spirit. That was definitely David. But actually, God's doing something in hearts. I mean, even that they all turned up was amazing. We got scared. I was scared. Some of them were scary people. And, and, you know, it, it was amazing. But I long to see it again and again and again. And I've not really seen it in our nation. Uh, sorry, I've sidetracked. Let's talk about the nation. <gasps> I'm okay, I'm okay. Ooh. Got a few minutes. Let's talk about the nation. Half past 11, I turn into a pumpkin. <laughs> talk about the nation. Because we need to see God's revival. We need it individually. The church... And the nation. Look at these verses. Now let's read this, these verses. Isaiah 64, 1 to 2. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. This is Isaiah praying. As when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil, come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. Oh, he knows how to pray. That's just the middle of his prayer. Isaiah has a massive prayer, great revival prayer, which goes from Isaiah 63 verse 7 to Isaiah 64 verse 12. That's two little verses in the middle. And in the middle, I mean, it's a great prayer all the way through. He's, he's almost imagining that the, the, the sky or the, the heavens are like a curtain. He says, rip the curtain apart, Lord. Rend them and come down. And meet with us and meet with men and women. Make your presence felt to all in their darkness and sin. Do you know, I genuinely feel a deep burden for my nation, this nation, the United Kingdom. I would argue it, it's been in my heart for decades, but it's not satisfied yet. I want to see a revival in our nation. I want to see our nation changed. And I do not think it will change any other way than by thousands and ultimately hundreds of thousands and possibly millions. I don't expect everybody, but many being saved and swept into God's kingdom. That will not happen merely in churches like this. It will happen in all sorts of churches. Some of it will undoubtedly completely uh, disturb my parameters and my tidy theology. I understand that. That always happens. But people meet Jesus all over the place when there's a real revival. I'd just like to be one part of it, please, Lord. <laughs> you know, that, that actually, that is what our nation really needs. That multiple hundreds of thousands of people come to know Jesus, get ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. 
And as they do, in that, there will be the odd Will, William Wilberforce. There'll be the odd giant who will do something beyond. There'll be the odd Hudson Taylor. There'll be the odd Wesley. There'll be the odd uh, Florence Nightingale. There'll be all sorts of people, right? There'll be occasional superstar sportsmen who really get saved. C.T. 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 Stud who was a cricketer. He was a bit like a David Beckham in his day. He was a top cricketer. And, and of course, you know, that was cricket was the game in those days. We're back 100 years away ago. And, and so it was like a, a, and a superstar gets saved and then goes as a missionary. That happens. But, a lot, but amongst it, hundreds of thousands of ordinary lives are changed. Families are changed. Husbands and wives restored in their relationship. Children restored to their parents. People coming out of sin. Prisons less full. Real revival has seen that happen. In communities where, where seriously big changes happen. Modern equivalent would be drug dealers go out of business and get very angry about it. So be ready for that. And you know, all sorts of things like that happen. And that is what one looks for. I look for. I've seen... I've, I've always been interested in politics and current affairs, and I, I'm now in my mid-60s. So I've seen a lot of stuff in the country. I've seen over a decade of the left dominating and of socialism presented as an answer. I've seen over a decade of the opposite, really, radical market-driven reforms and capitalism, if you like. I've seen over a decade of the third way or whatever it is Mr. Blair and Mr. Cameron tried to do. And now the latest is that, you know, somehow some lot are pushing Brexit and a lot are promoting a very left-wing agenda, more than we've had before. I tell you, it may, all of it may have some benefits here, there and everywhere. It's not going to solve the real problem. All through those different political periods, I I don't grumble about it. God's blessed us. The country's been relatively stable, thank God. But but really, while all through that, the moral situation, the the despair, the dysfunctional family life, the drug taking, the the, the broken up lives have got worse and worse. It wasn't perfect, not at all in the past, but, but there's no real answer to the heartache, to the emptiness, the despair, the confusion. The gospel is the answer. The gospel is the answer. I, I really, really, really believe that. And I don't personally feel that anything else really quite matches it. I don't think how I put this. It's only a move of God that will turn the people back. Now, Isaiah, let's, so let's keep my tracks. I'll keep on track. Isaiah is praying in this bit we've just read because he gets that. Now, at the, at the point he's praying... The nation he's praying for is not actually yet completely overrun with the enemy. It's not yet in complete chaos. There is still an element of prosperity, an element of peace. But he knows that it's going to get worse. He can see national collapse coming. He can see warfare and impoverishment coming. And so he cries out, God, move and turn us back to yourself. Now, whatever historically he could expect and did see and didn't see... We have a greater hope. There's no question in my mind. We are in an age when the gospel is for the whole world and for every person. Thank God you live after Jesus lived, died, and rose again. Isaiah's revival could really get no further than a re-establishment of the covenant and law with Israel and being able to fend off the attacks of maybe the Babylonians and being able to sort of uh, maybe export a bit of, of Yahweh's wisdom and law to others. That is really limited. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And we know it's for everyone. And it's, it doesn't matter who they are. They've all got a problem, heart problem, a sin problem. And they all can have it dealt with through Jesus Christ. Amen? And it's for every nation and tribe and tongue of every religion and background. And it would always make someone better. And it would be better that they knew Jesus than that they didn't. I am utterly convinced of that. From a billionaire to a street-sleeping uh, poor person, they would be better off to know Jesus Christ as their saviour. Yes, there'll be challenges for either extreme or anybody in between. But it is better to know Jesus, to have eternal life, to, to have the Holy Spirit in you, to have the hope for this life and the life to come that it comes in the gospel. It must be true, mustn't it? It must be true. And we need to be Isaiahs. This is the point. Isaiah is praying for people that feel fairly complacent and are not going to pray for themselves. And the people of modern Britain still feel fairly comfortable, though there is a lot of unease about. And they're not going to pray for themselves. But we need to pray for them. Isaiah does not condemn so much as associate himself with the people. So we're just going to look at a couple more bits from that chapter 64. This is another bit of his prayer. He associates himself. All of us, he's talking about himself as well, all of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. This is his prayer. For you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Next uh, screen, please. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, Lord, look upon us. We pray. That's praying. He's getting down his knees. Look, he's not just pointing the finger. We're not called to that. We're not called as Christians to constantly point the finger at things we see as moral decline in the nation. It's not hard to find them, but that's not what we're there to do. We may want to speak out on issues. I'm not saying we back off if something of truth is important and we need to make the point. But that's not the main thing. We're not actually to put all our energy into politics or political reform. That is not a bad thing to do. I'm glad that some Christians feel called to it. But that, again, as I've emphasised, won't really solve the fundamental problem. I would say we do not merely need to give ourselves to good works and social action, though I would never despise that. I think we need to do more of it than we probably do because I think it shows the love of God. It's part of the gospel. However, above and beyond all that, we are called to pray <laughs> and proclaim. Pray for our nation and proclaim the good news of Jesus. That, I don't despise concern, writing petitions, concern about things. I don't despise that. I've done some of it myself. I don't despise by any means good works at all. But fundamentally, like Isaiah, we have got to pray, God, will you break in? God, come and send another Pentecost. That's what you ought to do on us and on the country around. And be ready and perhaps start proclaiming. Because it's not just praying. In the end, there's a declaration of the truth. That, like on the day of Pentecost, they go outside the doors and start speaking in the power of the Holy Spirit. We know God can break in and bring revival to a nation 
a people, a city. He has done it thousands of times since the book of Acts. Acts is a bit of a model, sort of, of how it might work, but actually it's happened again and again. It's happened in our nation in some very dark times. If you know any history, and we're not obviously time to look at it, the state of our country, this is not new where we're at today, the state of our country in the past has been pretty bleak. I mean, I've read recently John Bunyan's uh, biography of John Bunyan, wrote Pilgrim's Progress. You can forget, he spent 14 years in prison in this country, and he was in prison for preaching the gospel in this country. That's where he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. So you think, well, we're not yet being put in prison for preaching the gospel, but it could happen, (laughs) and it wouldn't be the first time. So actually, there have been some pretty bleak times. Wesley started in Whitfield in a very, very morally declined, messy, messy country, which many people felt was on the verge of something like the French Revolution. And then there was a move of God, which they were very leading figures in, but multiple others were involved. So it's it's never happened before. Whatever the explanation, and we sit at a very strange time in this country. Come on, we do. The moral confusion, the gender confusion is extraordinary. Then there's the whole political confusion I've already referred to. You know, what is going to happen in the end with this Brexit thing? And then we've got one extreme and another extreme. Well, this is a time that's ripe for God to move, isn't it? It's the sort of thing God will do. Let's finish by putting up Habakkuk, a verse of Habakkuk, who was another prophet who prayed for revival. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. These guys were praying for their nation. That's what they were doing. They were praying. They said, you've done it before. You can do it again. And we're not going to go down the road of unbelief, as Tozer calls it. You know, it won't happen here. It happens everywhere else. The voice of faith will say, it can happen here in our day and generation. We've got some of us have got some prophetic promises about it, but I don't think we want to tie our heads around that too much because they should just be a provocation to prayer. Prophecy provokes faith and action. And there are conditions for these things. I've referred to them. That people are prepared. They turn from their sin. They humble themselves. They seek God's face. So that's the way we respond even if we've heard prophecies about revival. Amen? Amen. Let's have the musicians up again. We are going to finish there. I'm not going to do a great, as they're coming up, I'm not going to do a great appeal or anything this morning, but I have got a very practical appeal. We have got some prayer coming up in the autumn. These little leaflets, reopening the wells. I don't know if you've seen them. Are they Barry? They're at the back, aren't they? These little leaflets are at the back. This is particularly for Hope Church, uh, people who come to Hope Church. Instead of a week of prayer, we're going to have some uh, two days, sort of couplets of prayer on a Wednesday and a Sunday. And we're following through on a prophetic word from Jamie Can about wells of revival, worship, hopes and dreams and healing. And the first two days are Wednesday, September the 20th and Sunday, September the 24th. They'll be the evening's uh, prayer meetings. And that's on revival. So the response to this morning is probably a bit threefold. It's to continue to pray for your nation on your own. I pray for my nation. I pray for this church in my own quiet time. I pray for myself. But it's to also come to those prayer meetings if you're here. 
and be part of praying for revival. If you're not yet clear that you are a follower of Jesus or you really feel a very truly parched time in your life and you just need a fresh encounter with God, after we or as we're singing, the prayer team will gather on my left. And as, as the song finishes, I, I encourage you to just come forward and ask someone to pray for you. If there's a sort of, you think, I, I need someone just to help me. I just need to meet God afresh or maybe for the first time. There'll be space for people to pray for you here, and they'd gladly do that. But for most of us, the response I would call you to is to pray for revival. Amen? Let's stand and sing one last song.